Did y'all have a Merry Christmas? Yes. It's very good. Very good. This is, this is that really, it's a weird week. It's always a weird week, like in between Christmas and New Year's. It's just, it's just sad. Is anybody still listening to Christmas music? You guys are the uncomfortable people that are still listening to Christmas music. I don't want you to watch my kids ever. I don't trust you. I'm kidding. I, I listen to the day after. But it's that weird week where you're like taking down your Christmas decorations, everything, like the awe and wonder is kind of wearing off a little bit. The backup preacher is preaching the Sunday after Christmas. But the awe and wonder kind of like comes off a little bit, right? Like I was thinking about this, like, you know, like the birth of Jesus and the shepherds hear the angels singing and show up and you're like, ah, Jesus is here. And all the shepherds are here because every woman wants a bunch of shepherds hanging out in the OB after they just had their baby. And I wonder at what point that Joseph was like, all right, guys, it's time to leave. This is, this is good. This is enough fun with the shepherds. Now it's time to go. And like what that like next morning felt like. You know what I mean? Like, like what do you do now, right? Like the awe and the wonder kind of wears off a little bit, right? Like it's just kind of what happens at that week after Christmas. And so as Adam said, for just this week and next week, we just wanted to take a look at the book of Psalms just for a couple weeks. And, and this is why I think that, that looking at the Psalms, the, the book of Psalms does two things. That it does two things that I, I love. The first thing it does is it does this, is that it's, it's so true about the human experience and the realities of our lives, right? Like if you've ever read the Psalms, it's very honest, it's very real. Sometimes you're like, is he allowed to say that? Like it's, it's very honest and real about just human emotion and the reality of life, right? Kind of the, it's, it's very appropriate for the week after Christmas, right? It's very, very appropriate for, for the realities of our life. But at the same time, the book of Psalms uh, instills and reminds us and maintains the awe and the wonder of who God is. And that's what I love about the Psalms. Is it, it deals with the reality of life, but at the same time, reminds us and instills the awe and wonder of who God is. And the Psalms are all about worship. You're like, you're the worship pastor. That's what you're supposed to talk about. Fine. It's going to be okay. But that's, that's what the Psalms are all about. It's all about worship. And what I love about worship is, and we'll, for the sake of today, we'll talk about worship is just kind of this corporate gathering, us coming together, hearing the word, singing together, all together. That, that what worship does is the same thing the Psalms do, is I think it right in the middle of our lives, it deals with the reality of life while instilling the awe and wonder of God. Like it's Sunday morning. It's raining. It's the week after Christmas. We're a bunch of normal people, no offense, and we're all wearing jeans. And here we are together, right? Singing to God, right? That there's this normal everyday aspect to it, but at the same time, we're instilled with the awe and the wonder of who God is, that he's the lion, that he's the lamb, that he's the living hope and singing about his goodness and all those things that we did. It's what I love about worship. It's what I love about the Psalms. I, I, um, I've been doing worship music for a big chunk of my life, hanging out around the church and been on staff for like seven years. And so being a worship pastor, you're always having these worship conversations. What's worship? What isn't worship? All these definitions. And there's this uh, worship leader, his name's John Mark McMillan. And I saw, I think he posted this on Instagram, so it's not like in a book or anything, but he had this quote that I saw recently that I loved as he talked about worship. He said that worship is the voice that we give to value and desire. It's the articulation of those things which weigh heaviest upon our hearts. It's a thing that reaches far beyond clunky mission statements and claims of faith. It's the residue of our lives. It's the result of our compulsion to love the maker and to love what the maker has made. It's courage to question the maker when we don't understand and courage to embrace the maker when we still don't understand. I love that. 
It's the courage to do this imperfectly, and above all, it seems to be a thing that we can only do together. I love that definition of worship, and that's exactly what we find in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, whether some people love the Psalms, some people like, don't like the Psalms, like it's too like, airy and flowery, and they don't really like it that much. Wherever you're at, the book of Psalms is this beautiful like, playbook for worship. It's this beautiful playbook for worship. It's, it's important to understand what the Psalms are, because sometimes we can kind of treat it just like Oprah quotes, right? Like we just find our favorite one and stick it on a coffee mug or a tattoo. Everybody's got Oprah tattoos, right? But, but we got to understand what, what the Psalms are. And as I was studying for this, I heard a guy talking about the Psalms, and I loved how he described it. He called them a prayer book for exiles, he called them a prayer book for exiles. I'll explain that because that gives us no, no help, right? This, this, the Psalms are this, this collection of writings. King David was a, a king of Israel in the Old Testament, and he, he wrote all these Psalms, and some of these Psalms were meant to be kind of prayed, uh, prayed privately. Some of them were kind of meant to be sung and recited corporately together, but it was this collection of Psalms, mostly written by David, some written by uh, uh, Moses and a couple other people. But the whole story of the Old Testament, if you're familiar or not, is the story of, of God's people, that he chose this guy and his family, and they become this nation, and they can conquer this land, and eventually they become this kingdom, and David becomes their king. And so they interact with God. This is the Israelites. They interact with God by going to the temple, and where they would go to pray, they would go to sing. The temple would be full of imagery that would remind them of the story of God and how he's delivered their people and his nature, be full of sights and smells and all this experience that they would go and worship and be with God. Now, all through the Old Testament, if you read it, you see that the Israelites are silly people that continue to turn their back on God. Sound familiar? And they continue to turn their back on God. And eventually, God uses other nations and kind of drives them out of their promised land, out of their kingdom. And so they become exiles, right? Their temple is destroyed and they become exiles. And what this author I was reading about was talking about that the Psalms become this prayer book for the Israelites who were exiled, that they can no longer go to the temple and worship God. So the Psalms are this almost, this, this, this prayer book that's a picture of what the temple was. It's not just a bunch of random poetry and collections, but it's the story of how God has delivered them. It's these honest conversations with God, and it shows the story of God's faithfulness, of how he's provided for them, his promises, what he's going to do. It becomes this virtual temple for them. It's this prayer book for exiles. And you continue to go through the story, we come upon Jesus in the New Testament. And this is a fun fact, but Jesus, he quotes the Old Testament a lot in his ministry on the earth in his three years that we kind of see documented in the Gospels. But he quotes the Psalms more than any other, any other book. He quotes the Psalms a lot. And, and he quotes uh, Psalm 118 when he calls himself the cornerstone. Uh, he quotes Psalm 80, 82 when he claims to be God. Even while he's hanging on the cross, he, he quotes Psalm 22 and says, God, why have you forsaken me? We see Jesus quoting the Psalms more than anything else. And then we get to ourselves here today. And I love, uh, Pastor Jonathan had said this to me as we were talking about this. And he says that the Psalms speak to us and they speak for us. I love that because so often we kind of, Scripture, I don't know what your background is of the Bible, but can kind of feel like this mystical book and you got to know all this random history and you're not sure how to, how to approach it. But the Psalms speak to us and for us in a very personal way, right? I love that, that they speak to us. They, in the same way as it did for Israel, reminds us of the story, instills that awe and wonder, reminds us of his promises, of his greatness, and it speaks to our heart and speaks to our emotion. The Psalms speak to us, but they, at the same time, speak for us. That the Psalms are very honest. As I said, there's certain Psalms where David, in his frustration, his anger, he says certain things about his enemies, and you're like, I'm not sure that that would be allowed to be uh, posted on Twitter today. 
Maybe Twitter is a pretty, uh, pretty unlawful place, but, but I, you're like, I'm not sure if you're allowed to say that. Like it's, the Psalms are very honest that it expresses doubt, it expresses frustration, and at the same time expresses this big lengthy praise that the Psalms speak to us, but they also speak for us. And so today, as Adam said, you guys have Psalm 145 open to your lap. I think he said that. I don't remember. Psalm 145 is we're going to camp out today. It's, it's the last Psalm that David wrote in the book of Psalms. There's five kind of concluding Psalms of praise, and this is kind of the hinge between the last five and that one, Psalm 145. And this is for free, but there's different ways that they'd organize these psalms. And what's interesting about this is in the original language, it was an acrostic where each verse was a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's just interesting how they would organize these together. And so as we jump into this today, we'll throw this up on the screen. You can write this in the big blank in your notes. But this is what what I kind of want to just accomplish today simply. Today's a simple morning. But I want to look at how the psalms, this book that speaks to us and for us, how the psalms give us a picture of worship that shapes our perspective of God. We'll say this all the time. We're going to go into a big series uh, all throughout this winter and spring that talks about how we are shaped and how we are formed. We're all shaped by something. We're all formed by something, whether it's the news we listen to, the podcast, TV, relationships, the way we spend our time, money, we're shaped by those things. And so the Psalms help give us a picture of worship of what that looks like that helps shape our perspective of God. I feel like every time I preach, I say something about perspective. I think perspective is such an important thing. The way that we see a situation, the way that we see others, the way that we see God says a lot about us. <laughs> My wife just got glasses this week and it, it was, should have been a YouTube video. She called them heaven goggles. I didn't realize how blind she was. She's like, look at all the grass. I'm like, you can't see the grass? I'm like, take your glasses off and tell me when you can see this road sign. And we were like two feet in front of that road sign and she could not read it. I'm like, I would arrest you if I was a cop. This is terrible. But her perspective changed when she got these glasses. She saw everything differently, right? And so as we look at the Psalms, it gives us a picture for worship that shapes our perspective of God. And so the first thing I want to look at in Psalm 145 this morning is that worship, what we see in the Psalms, gives us a perspective of God's power. Worship gives us a perspective of God's power. I want to read these first six verses uh, together here in Psalm 145. You guys with me? Sometimes we tune out when we hit the scriptures. Here we go. Verse one, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your work to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. It's almost like David's kind of spilling. Like, you know, when a little kid's trying to tell you something, they kind of keep repeating. You're like, come on, say it, say it. Like, David is like spilling over with his praise in this picture of God. I was, as I was studying for this, one uh, commentator said that he's exhausting all these Hebrew words to paint this picture of God, that he's exhausting his language, so to say. And today I have the best analogy I could come up with was the sandlot. So there will be two sandlot quotes Two Sandlot references in this sermon this morning. Have you guys seen Sandlot? Yes. It's going to be rough if you didn't. All right. The first, I love the scene in Sandlot. If you know Sandlot, it's about like, some kids in the 50s who kind of have this ragtag baseball team, and there's a big mean dog and a guy on the other side of the fence, and there's the new guy, you're killing me, Smalls, who's a little bit nerdy and backwards, but they invite him into their baseball troop. 
And what happens is when they first meet this kid, he doesn't know much about baseball and he doesn't know much about Babe Ruth, who's like the LeBron James of baseball. And so they're standing outside the drugstore and he says, who's Baby Ruth? And all of his friends say, who's Babe Ruth? And they go on, they go on to say, the King of Crash, the Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Clout, the Colossus of Clout, the Great Bambino. They exhaust this language to describe Babe Ruth. And that's what we see David doing is in this, in this passage, as he's talking about God's power, he's exhausting the Hebrew language to paint this picture of who God is. I love the magnitude of the language used all through the scripture to describe God. We, like the, the English language is very strange. Like we don't have a lot of words for things and we, we kind of use the same words to describe everything, right? Like we say this all the time. I love burgers. I love my wife. I love God. It's the same word, Right. But there's so much more language that's used all throughout the scripture to paint this picture of God. I love it. Ephesians 3.8, Paul talks about the unsearchable, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Romans 11.33, Paul talks about, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. But there is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes all throughout the earth, and their words to the end of the world. That even the heavens and the creation without language still proclaim the greatness of who God is. And all through the scriptures, we see this this picture, especially in the Psalms, that paint this vast, elaborate, beautiful language of God's greatness. And one thing that worship does, and the Psalms point to, is it reminds us of God's greatness. And I think that's important because I think we, I know for myself, you can relate to me or not, is that we we make God small in our lives, right? Right? Like we naturally kind of make God small that we think he's, we kind of reduce him down to a deity that gave us this magical moral book and we can fool him, we can outsmart him, we can outreason him and that ultimately we know better than him, right? Like we, we even if it's subconscious, we second guess his commands, his heart, his presence, the work that he's done and we simply reduce him to a philosophy or a belief system. Like some of us wouldn't like do this intentionally, but it's kind of what we end up doing, right? We kind of reduce him just to this, this kind of page of a book. And it's not the living God that we see all throughout scripture. Now I was thinking about this. I think this is important because I'm very passionate about, about we come in the room, we get excited about stuff, but we leave and we get in our, our Subaru, we drive home and there's some disconnect, right? There's some disconnect, and it's, I know it's the same for me. I know it's the same for you. We're like, where is that at? And what I love is how the Psalms and, and worship collide the realities of our life with the awe and wonder of God. But it makes me think of what is it in our lives that make God small to us? And I think there's a lot of things. I think I said that we were, we're, sh- we're all shaped by something. I think sometimes we look at the things that shape us, that they shape us, they make God small, that sometimes it's our fears, right, that make God small. Like you turn on the news, you get on Twitter and you're like, the world is falling apart and God cannot help us at this point. Step aside, God, we have politics or something like that, right? Like there's so, then our fears can kind of get a hold of us and it makes God look small. I think sometimes it's just simple things like distractions and preoccupations that we're like, we don't have time for God because we're sitting on our phones. We're trying to run 90,000 different directions. And there's so much going on and our lives are going this way. And I'm not trying to sound like the church guy, but it's just the reality. And we get to church and we're like, God feels small. Like you hear David like proclaiming all these big words. And we're like, that's not my experience, right? It's not our experience because we make God small. I think about it this way that 
that when you're farther away from something, it makes something look smaller, but it doesn't mean that it's any less significant, right? Like if you're standing at the foot of a mountain, you just walk lots of miles that way, the mountain didn't get any smaller, just my perspective changed. Uh, when I was in college, we uh, tried to skateboard for a couple minutes. <laughs> I tried to be a long, a longboard skateboarder, which is you just kind of cruise around. And we were from Doylestown, as I say, and it's not a not good location for skateboarding. A lot of chip and seal roads out in Doylestown. But there is this one road, this one hill called Juniper Hill, somewhere in Doylestown. And we were longboarding and we're like, we can take that hill. That hill is not that big. We can skateboard down that hill. And so I was about 28 minutes into my skateboarding career. We got to the top of Juniper Hill and Juniper Hill does a T into another road. We got to take a nice 90 degree turn. 29 minutes into my career at this point. And so we, we go down this hill and I'm halfway through it when I realize this hill is a lot bigger than I thought it was. This, this hill did not look very steep, but that's where they get you. That's where they get you. And so I'm like, I'm not going to make this turn. I don't have these skills figured out yet. So I'm going to jump off my skateboard and I go from like, I don't know, 20 miles per hour to zero, which is very abrupt. And I just ate chip and seal very quick. I still have scars all up and down me. But I realized the greatness of this hill was a lot different when I was up on it. But when I was far away from it looking at it, it didn't look that great. And that's what happens with God is that he becomes small in our hearts and small in our minds. And we look at the, the realities of life, the pains of life, the, the struggles that we're bringing into this room. And we're like, you look small, God, and not able to help me, right? And that doesn't just happen here, but it's shaped by all types of decisions and fears and ways that we choose to spend our time and money and resources and thoughts. And all of a sudden, God becomes small, Right? My son is 11 months. I'm at that stage of preaching where I just talk about my kid all the time. It'll pass. Something else will come eventually. Maybe another kid. But we're not pregnant. We're not pregnant. No, it's really not. But uh, my, my son is at this stage where he just says, wow, to everything. Right? It's, it's very cute. It's very cute. But we you know, plug in the Christmas tree. Wow. And I love that sense of awe and wonder that he has. And I think as we gather together in corporate worship, which is us in here, singing songs together, hearing the word coming from all kinds of weeks. Some of you had awesome weeks. Some of you had terrible Christmases, painful Christmases. Some of you were like, it's, it's this weird middle of the week and I'm, I don't even like these songs. I got stuck with Aiden Leiden instead of Garrett and I don't even like what Aiden Leiden's. I don't like these songs. And we're here together. And we're like, it just feels very blasé sometimes, right? But the beauty of this, the beauty of what we do corporately when we gather together to reorient our perspective to the greatness of God is that we bring all these things together. We lay aside our preferences. We stand before the story of God and be reminded that God is beyond anything we can think or imagine. He's unsearchable and that we would stand here together and say, wow. That we would, just like we celebrated Christmas, be reminded that God is not far off and indifferent, but he came to dwell with us in the most humble of ways that we would stand there and say, Wow, that we would see that the God who stepped down from glory that we just sang about bore my sin and shame on the cross, that we would stand before the God who created on the cross bearing my sin and shame and say, wow, right? Like that's, that's the hope for us as we come together corporately to worship is that worship would shape us together, that we collectively from all kinds of weeks, all kinds of doubts, all kinds of questions, all kinds of stories would say, wow at the goodness and greatness of who God is. That worship shapes, worship shapes our perspective of God, that God does not change. God isn't like less great than he was, but we want to reorient our perspectives to see him properly, and corporate worship does that. It helps us give us perspective of his greatness, and it helps give us perspective of God's character. You guys can write that 
in your notes that worship gives us a perspective of God's character. Um, Psalm 145, verse, we'll jump to verse 7 and 9. It says, They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all, and he has compassion on all that he has made. Do you believe that this morning? Like in your hearts, like do you, like, do you believe that's true? Like I know some of us are coming from all, all kinds, I, I know this for a fact, like coming from all kinds of different places. And for some of us, we walk in and we're not, we're not sure that that's what we think about God. Our perspective of God is not there. Like we wouldn't say those things about God. Like David wrote this down, that's not what we would write down. In our perspective, because some of us, we've had like rough things happen in life, pain and loss, and our perspective of God is, is shaped by that, right? Like if God, then why? Like some of you are holding on to that question right now, walking through the holidays. For some of you, it was like a terrible like church or religious experience that you came, you're like, this is what the church is to me because this is what they said to me. This is what they did to me. This is the way they treated me. And so you have a different perspective of God's goodness because of your religious or church experience, right? Or for, for some of us, there's, if we're honest, you like to be honest around here, is like there's certain passages in scripture, there's certain aspects of things that you read in the Bible that you're like, why did he, why, why did that? And it shapes and we question, we kind of second guess God's character, right? Am I hitting any nails on the head for any of us? I know that I struggle with some of these things, right? And so when I read the, these passages, I'm like, yes, but, and we can have a flawed perspective of who God is. I said we had two uh, Sandlot references. Here's number two. That, that in, through the whole movie of Sandlot, there's, there's mean Mr. Myrtle who lives on the other side of the fence with this mean giant dog who apparently is the size of a dinosaur before they actually meet him. And so they play baseball the whole time. There's these legends and myths of Mr. Myrtle on the other side of the fence. And they hear about, you know, Squints tells the story of his grandpa forever. And tells this whole story about how mean Mr. Myrtle was and how his dog ate a man and all this stuff. And then you get to the end of the movie where they actually, you know, meet Mr. Myrtle and they realize that he's a kind man who lost his vision and can't get out and around and that he's actually a baseball savant and knows all this baseball stuff and has all these baseball paraphernalia and they establish this great relationship with him. But the whole movie, there's all this fear, there's a second guessing, there's these things that they've heard and they have a different flawed perspective of who Mr. Myrtle is. That for many of us, we've got a wrong picture of who God is. And the Psalms the scriptures, the story of God making his way to us, the story of God reorients and reminds us of God's compassion towards all mankind. I said how the Psalms are kind of this retelling of the story of Israel, right? The prayer book for exiles. In verse eight, it says here that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. This isn't the first time this is in the scriptures. This is, this is a verse where God is talking about himself, and it happens in Exodus 34, 6. This is kind of the Mount Sinai scene, if you're familiar with the Bible. It's kind of when God gives the Ten Commandments to his people. There's kind of this big thing that happens at Mount Sinai. When he gives the Ten Commandments, and the Lord comes down in this cloud, and he says this in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That this kind of self-description of God is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament. That this kind of, David isn't just saying this out of nowhere. David, in his writing of Psalm 145, is pulling from this, quoting what God has said about himself. But there's other times that this, this self-descriptive revelation of God is written throughout the Old Testament. 
And in one particular instance, it's written, it's not out of worship. It's not out of praise. It's not out of joy, but it's out of anger and it's out of frustration that it's said. In the book of Jonah, there's a, a prophet named Jonah. So if you ever heard Jonah and the big fish, it's a, it's a small book. And what it's about is God, there's this evil, evil city called Nineveh. And God wants to give them a chance to repent. He wants to give them the opportunity to turn from their sin and show him, show the city grace. And so he uses this guy named Jonah to go and tell them. But Jonah's like, these are my enemies and I hate them. So Jonah runs the other direction, jumps on a boat, jumps overboard, swallowed by a fish. Like he really doesn't want to go there. And God eventually gets him there. And, and this is what Jonah, this is what it said in Jonah 4 verses 1 through 4. It says, but to Jonah... This seemed very wrong. It's the fact that God wanted to offer grace to the city. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home, that what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's not saying like, God, you're compassionate, God. He hates these people. And yet God wants to show them grace, wants to give them opportunity. He's so angry at this that he's like, you are a God who is compassionate, who relents from sending calamity. And he's angry saying it back to God. And it just makes me think that for all the songs we sing, all the pictures of God's grace and forgiveness and love and mercy that we, that we take in, it doesn't stop with us. It's not just for us, Right? But it's for also the people that, that we get most frustrated with, that if we're honest, that we hate. It's for the people on the other side of the political aisle. It's from the people who have hurt us. It's from the people that have, have caused so much roadblocks in our lives that we get so frustrated. Because we so often know for myself that we can become Jonah's. We're like, yeah, us, but not for them. Like Jonah wasn't kind of mad. He was like, I would rather die than you show grace to those people. Sounds like Twitter sometimes. Being honest, I'm not joking. Like it's like sometimes like the church doesn't sound much different for the world in this whole global frustration that we all throw at each other. And we can so quickly become Jonas. But the whole nature of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like that's, that's like the gospel that we believe, right? That it wasn't like when we put our act together that he came towards us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I just want to say this that there's an aspect to grace that we all like, if, if you have tasted and seen God's grace in your life, you're like so thankful for it. But there is times we feel like Jonah's where grace is shown and offered to other people. We're like, not them, not them. That there's an aspect to grace. If it hasn't made us a little mad, a little uncomfortable, a little frustrated, we might, I'm not saying we haven't, I'm just saying maybe we haven't tasted the full scope of God's grace towards us, Right? That God's grace is greater than we imagine. And in this passage where we see God's compassionate character, it angers Jonah because he loves his enemies. So like I said, you may be here, you may, you may disagree or struggle to believe God's goodness, his compassion, his faithfulness. And you may be thinking like I do oftentimes, yes, but. Like I'm a, I'm a very pessimistic person. Caught you by surprise. Like, but Aiden's nice. I think you're all super messed up. I think I'm super messed up. I think we're all way more messed up than we realize, right? Like, I'm super pessimistic. And so I oftentimes am like, yes, but when I hear about the goodness and the faithfulness and compassionate of God. 
But I love that quote that Macmillan said earlier, where he said, in the, in, in the midst, of, in midst of worship, as we reorient our minds and hearts back to God, that he said that worship is courage to question the maker when we don't understand, and it's courage to embrace the maker when we still don't understand. And so if that's you today, if you're here and you're like, I, yes, but this verse, yes, but this thing that happened to me, yes, but my experience, like I, I'm not going to say I understand because I'm very confident that I do not understand what, what is kind of that wall between you and trusting God's compassion. But I challenge you, if you're, if you're a believer, to continue to have courage, even when we don't believe, to, to drink from the well that is God's goodness, right? But the whole story of the Bible is we see God moving towards us. So I just want to challenge you to continue to have courage to walk towards God's goodness. As we, as we uh, sing, um, if you haven't been here before, I usually get to lead worship with Garrett, and I say this all the time. I probably say this too much. I repeat myself a lot, but that part of worship is us reminding ourselves, reminding ourselves of God's greatness and God's goodness. Because like I said before, like he hasn't changed, right? Like Nietzsche said God died. I believe he was wrong, but, but God does not change. Like, it's not like he's more good and then less, more gooder, and then less good. Like, it's not like it fluxes and flows, but our perspective changes, right? Our perspective changes. So in the same sense that we make God small and have to be reminded of his greatness and have the right perspective, in the same sense that we question his goodness and compassion, that we have to reorient ourselves to his character, I think in the same sense we have to remind ourselves of the story. When I was in middle school, there was a young fellow from Akron, Ohio, named LeBron James, who became a big deal. You may have heard of him. He lives in LA now. So maybe you forgot about him. But he was like the biggest deal, right? Like he's on the cover of sports, sports magazine. Everybody loves sports magazine. I don't know. I just heard that he's on the cover of a big sports magazine. ESPN is broadcasting his high school games. Like this dude is going to be a legend and him or correct he is. I wasn't a big sports guy. And so I heard about this LeBron stuff. Some of my family got to meet him. One of my brothers had a signed basketball from his rookie year. All this stuff, that's awesome. LeBron's so cool. But like time goes by, and I don't care about basketball that much. So like I stopped paying attention. And then in 2010, he leaves and everybody's mad, but I still am like not really paying attention to him. This whole time, LeBron didn't get less awesome, right? He didn't like stop being the GOAT debate that later, but he was, he was still awesome the whole time. And then in 2000 something, a couple years ago, when they kind of came back in the final, I started paying attention, kind of got into the NBA. I'm like, LeBron is the GOAT. This is awesome. And I started paying attention to it again. In the span of that whole time, LeBron did not change. He didn't get worse. He never had any injuries. I just stopped paying attention. I just wasn't watching. I wasn't listening. I didn't care. And when I started paying attention again in 2000 whatever, I, I was reminded, I was reminded of, oh, dude, LeBron's awesome. Dude, he's really the GOAT. He's really like better than everybody. Like I was reminded of it because I stopped looking, I stopped listening, I stopped caring. As we come in together, as we worship together, we reorient our minds and hearts to the amazing, all-encompassing nature and character of who God is. And we may not feel it, that's fine. Someone once told me, hey, what if I don't feel like it? Like, just do it anyways. Just can't, I, don't, I pray, but I don't feel it. Just continue to pray. I don't want to sing, and I, I'm just moving my mouth. Continue to sing. You know, I'm not really sure if this has changed me. Continue to show up. That's what life is. This isn't like a Disney movie, right? This is life. And God meets us in the middle of life. The last thing I want to, I want to land here on will land slowly, is, is, is this idea. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, I guess, but it's just how we do it. 
is that worship, it gives us perspective, right? Right in the middle of our lives, gives us perspective, awe and wonder, greatness of God, of God's character. But as we look at Psalm 145, as we see David, let's call him Dave, like we're friends, you know, Dave, who wrote the, we see King David, we see like gushing, gushing about the greatness of who God is. And what he says here in Psalm 145, verse four, I think is so powerful. It's very simple. He says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Our hearts in our lips, in our lives, just like John Mark McMillan said, is the residue of worship that we perpetuate worship. We say this a lot around here, but what gets celebrated gets repeated. Like we make a big deal about people coming to know Jesus because what gets celebrated gets repeated. We make a big deal about baptisms. We make a big deal about when we see God working in our lives. We see, make a big deal about this stuff because what gets celebrated gets repeated. And, and whether you're in here and you're eight years old or you're 80 years old, whatever, I'll let you decide how old you are. Whatever that is, what David is doing here in his praise is that he's passing it on, right? Like we even are beneficiaries of David's relationship with God, that we see him gushing and we, we are taking that into our own hearts this morning, that we are handing off praise. We are telling the story, not just to ourselves, but to others to others. And David says to command this or to commend the works to the next generation, that we're all handing off something, whether you're eight or 80, we're all handing off something, right? And I think it's important. And it's not like someday when I'm on my deathbed, I'll hand out. No, like we're daily handing ourselves off to somebody. Whether it's our kids, whether it's our family, our spouses, our friends, people we work with, we're telling the story of God. And I want you to ask yourselves, like, what is it that you're handing off? If you're here and you're a believer, what is it that you're handing off about God? Is it like a position on something? Is it a stance? Is it an opinion? Like, is that like the most important thing is that my kid votes this way. The most important thing about this is that this, is that what we're handing off? Like, I don't mean to like harp on that. I just think it's important for us as a church to think about. Like, what are we handing off? Because the most genuine thing, the residue of our lives, as Macmillan said, is our worship. It is our response to who God is. Like there's, do you have those people in your life that you just like, just the way they talk, the way they pray, the way they kind of hold themselves, they're not by any means perfect, but you're just like, they just know and love and trust Jesus. And that residue kind of gets onto your life and you're shaped by them. Like we as believers are handing something, like you're not handing nothing off. What you may be handing off is indifference towards the reality of who God is and what he's doing. That may be what you're handing off but we're all handing off something. And I think what worship does is shapes that. It helps us look at what is it that we're giving. I love what David does in here. He talks about God's works and about God's acts and about what he's done. Talk to people, tell people, tell your kids, tell your family, talk about, talk about how God has delivered you, how he's still forming you, how his grace has kept you going, how his truth has brought you comfort and purpose and vision. Be honest about the struggles that you're going through about the things that you don't know yet. If you're old, let you decide. Can you tell us about what God is still teaching you? What God is still shaping inside you? I think that's what David's talking about. He wants to share this with the next generation to continue to tell of his mighty works, to tell of his acts. But I think this is where it, it kind of gets important. Is it's not just a vague idea. It's not just a concept, but it's, it's a personal thing for David that he's handing off. You guys can write it down this way. The proper perspective is perpetuated when it's made personal. That's a lot of alliteration. You're welcome. 
the proper perspective, the way in which we see God and understand his power and understand his character, that proper perspective, it keeps going, it's perpetuated when it's made personal inside my heart in my life. Not just when it's like knowledge, not just when it's like a thing, a piece of me, but when it's made personal. Look at, look at verses five through seven again. And just picture David writing this. David was this king who tasted God's goodness in so many ways, who, who failed big time in so many ways and tasted God's grace, who walked through some very, very hard things in response to his failures. But this is what he says, verse five, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and of your wondrous works, what's he say? I will meditate. They shall speak of your might and of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and I shall sing aloud of your righteousness. That for David, it's this personal thing that if it's gonna be passed on, if it's something that's worth passing on, it's gonna be something that's genuine and authentic in your own life. It's like you can't, like no one wants a manufactured thing. It's not gonna perpetuate. It's not gonna perpetuate. It's only what's truly happening inside of us, what God is truly doing in our lives that's gonna be perpetuated. And so I, I just want to end here. As I told you, it's a simple morning. Next week, we're going to look at Psalm 146. We're going to look at just the next Psalm right next door to this one. But I just, I just want to ask this just to think about, and Garrett, if you can hear me, you guys can come out. Uh, we're going to have the band just lead us in a song as we close. I encourage you to sing along. But what, what are the, like, ask yourself, like, what are the things in life that make God small? Like, what are the things in life that, that kind of make God, like, we hear that and we're like, that's cool, but that's not my experience. Like, what are the things in life that make God small? What are, what are like, the fears that we hold? Maybe they're not, like, conscious fears, but, like, subconscious things that we're scared of that make God small. What are the things that pull us and distract us that are shaping us, whether we know it or not, that in turn make God look small? Like we don't need God's control of our lives if we can control every area of our lives, right? Maybe there's an area of control that you're like, I need to give this up because it's making God look small like I don't need him. And I don't want to be the pastor who's like, hey, so stop doing those things. But when we acknowledge those things in our own hearts and minds, we can lay those at the feet of Jesus. And we can say, Jesus, I'm not trusting you because I'm scared of where this country's going. I'm scared of my comforts being shifted. I'm scared of people not thinking the same things that I think. God, I'm, I, I just want to be honest, I'm just so distracted by the pain and the things in my life that don't make sense. And it's just distracting me. And I'm so preoccupied with trying to handle these things. I don't, I don't have time. Like just lay those things at his feet. Like just be honest with him. Like sometimes it's just like, God, I just want to be honest. Like it's just stupid things are pulling my attention. I don't know why these are, are so much, so important to me. Like whatever those things, it's not like stop doing those things because we can't always stop doing things in our own willpower. But what we can do is lay at the feet of Jesus who can do all things and continue to submit ourselves to him and trust that as we do that, that we'll be shaped by him. Starting on January 12th, going all the way through the winter and fall, as I said, we're talking or through the spring, not going that long. What we're talking about is this, this, these practices of Jesus. Simple things that shape who we are, that shape how we think, that shape how we live, because we're all being shaped and formed by something. And so this is, this is gonna be the easiest takeaway ever for this week as we kind of go from 2019, 2020, is just this. 
that we all know it's, it's so easy for us to kind of have the wrong perspective. And so what's a simple way that we can reshape our perspectives? And I want, I want, us to, I want to challenge us to do this. That what does it look like for us to, to open up the Bible and just look at a psalm or a piece of a psalm or a couple verses of a psalm every day? To kind of just drink that in and be shaped by that. Like if we just, if we like wake up and read a David gushing about the greatness and glory and goodness and compassion of God, we're like, yeah, but I don't feel that today. Read it again tomorrow. Yeah, but I don't feel that this week. Read it again. Like it's not like a silver bullet. Everything doesn't change overnight, but we're slowly shaped. And I think as we drink from the Psalms that God has given us, this book of real life and this book of awe and wonder, that I trust that God will continue to shape us through that. There's a million ways to do that. I have this little book my mother got me for Christmas a couple years ago by Tim Keller. It's just a devotional through the Psalms by Tim Keller. There's a hundred ways through the Bible app you can do that. It can ping your phone to read a Psalm a day. Put your Bible by your bedside, throw a note in there. Callie told me yesterday that she got a coloring book that's a devotional of the Psalms. Am I right? It's the best thing I've ever heard. Where you read the Psalms and color and meditate on it. Get yourself a coloring book. Whatever it is, I just want to challenge you challenge you to let yourself be shaped by the goodness and the power of God. And I think what in turn will happen is we come into this room together to worship, that it'll continue to perpetuate and we will share the story of what God is doing in our lives, bring it together as the family and have a clearer picture of what God is doing through his church. Can we pray together? You guys can stand, we'll pray and we'll sing a song together. God, we're just so thankful that you're present with us. We're so thankful for your grace in our lives. Jesus, we're thankful for the Psalms, this picture of Jesus, these songs of Jesus that show us your grace, that show us your sufficiency, that show us your power, that give us language to praise you, that give us emotions to be honest with God. We're thankful for that. Pray that as we walk from 19 to 20, that we would continue to be shaped by you and by your word and by your community and not by our fears and our preoccupations. We're so thankful for your grace. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.